You're listening to the teaching of Calvary Paris. For more information, go to www.calvaryparis.com. Well, today, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. So glad that you're here. I'm sorry, chapter 12. Chapter 12. So glad that you're here with us to continue through this study. And the title of the sermon this morning is People of the Spirit. People of the Spirit. And I want to start off just with a quick prayer for the the message and that we will get into it. So pray once more with me this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, we are asking you to bless the Word of God this morning as we study it, as we open our minds and hearts to the Spirit and the work that you desire to do in us to shape and to mold us. And Father, we do pray uh, once again that you would use this church, Lord, to uh, continue to be on mission, Lord, and to accomplish the things that you have for this church, in this world, Lord, in our community, starting in our very own backyard, our Jerusalem, so to speak, our Samaria, the outlying communities, and then to all the ends of the earth, Lord. And Father, we thank you that as we study the word, as we grow in Christ, we become Christians who are living out the purposes of God. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's been said that there's been a connection between uh, watching World Cup soccer matches and boredom right? For some people. But not for me, okay? Not for me. You see, as a missionary for 10 years in Costa Rica myself, I have caught the fever for soccer. I not only understand the game, I enjoy watching it, believe it or not. As boring as that may sound to some of you guys, especially the football fanatics out there. But hey, it is is an amazing sport when you come to understand it. Well, this year at the World Cup, you see 32 teams from all over the world. Now, unfortunately, of course, the United States didn't make it in, but that's, I'll get to that in a minute. But you've got fullbacks, you've got midfielders, and you've got sweepers, and you've got forwards, all these different positions on one team of 11 men, and each group has different skills, different talents, but they use those skills and talents to better the team. They have to depend on one another in order to uh, win the games and to pass through the, the, the group stage into the elimination rounds and then hopefully on into the semifinals and finals. But as you know, the United States has no team in the World Cup this year. If you didn't know that, it's a real sad thing. So what am I left to do but to root for my team, right? And that would be the mighty Costa Ricans, right? The Ticos, so, ole, 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 ticos, ticos, okay? That's who I'm rooting for, guys, just in case you didn't know that. And yes, this is a Costa Rican flag with signatures on it from people that are part of the church that we planted there in Costa Rica. So I'm going for that. Now, nobody tell me the score of the game they played this morning. Don't ruin it for me like that, okay? I might punch you. That would be the only time. It's DVR'd at my house, okay? And I'm going to enjoy my Father's Day afternoon by watching that game. So don't ruin it for me. But listen, there's a healthy diversity within the context of a soccer team. And and it's a context of unity that does what? It propels the team to victory. That's what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 today. He's talking about context or a diversity within the context of unity, in order to propel the church to victory. Now, the theme of the message this morning is that a healthy church needs a diversity of gifts within the context of unity. 
A healthy church, if we are going to be a healthy church, then we need diversity in the gifts of the Spirit, all within the context of unity. We're one team, we're one family, we're pulling together for one purpose, and that is to know Christ and Him crucified in our community. Amen? That is what we are all about. And Paul begins making his first point in verses 1 through 3, and that first point is that the vital test of the Spirit's activity is the exaltation of Jesus Christ as Lord. If you've got your outline and you want to fill in the blanks this morning so you can take that home with you and have something to remember from this morning's message, I encourage you to do that. The Spirit's activity in a church is going to most be seen through the exaltation of Jesus Christ, Paul is saying. I want to give you some context before we read these first three verses of the chapter. I want to remind you that Paul is starting off, as you can see in verse 1 of chapter 12, he's starting off with those words, now, concerning spiritual gifts. This brings us into the context of the message. This is the third issue that Paul has, uh, is bringing to the Corinthian church's attention that they had brought up in their previous letter to him. And he's been dealing with two other issues in chapter 11 that pertain to the public worship service. That first issue was the casting off of tradition and confusing the gender distinctions between men and women in the church. And Paul says, hey, let's not do that. Let's not go there. And then the second issue in the second half of chapter 11 was the issue of the abuse of the Lord's Supper. Specifically, their failure to properly discern the Lord's body. They were creating class distinctions in the church. There was discrimination happening, and it was ugly. The Lord Jesus Christ wanted no part of that. And he said, so Paul says, hey, examine your hearts and your attitudes when you come to the table. It's not about, you know, who's more spiritual than who. It's about, hey, we all belong to Jesus Christ's body. Now, the third issue, he's addressing the issue of what it means to be the people of the Spirit which is what some of the believers in Corinth had their own ideas about. You'll remember that we have talked about these people several times. They were denying the physical side of their Christian lives. They believed that they were so spiritual that they didn't need the temporary institution of marriage anymore. Therefore, they were pressuring those that were in marriage to dissolve their marriages and to stop having sexual relations between husband and wife. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, you remember that whole chapter was about that. They were also pressuring those that were single to remain abstinent and to not get married. Fat chance, right? That's what I'm thinking. But then they were also, th- they were also, pressure- they were also saying, listen, because we already speak with the tongues of angels, hey, we're already there. We've already come. We've arrived, they were thinking. And so in their pride, they were pressuring others. And they were seeing themselves as neither male nor female nor given in marriage, but already like the angels. And it was getting them into all kinds of problems. In fact, we're going to see as we, were move, as we move forward, it was their enthusiasm for the gift of tongues, which was getting them into trouble. And that's what Paul is going to be addressing in chapters 12 through 14. They were putting way too much emphasis on this one gift, the gift of tongues. They saw it as the sole mark of the presence of the Holy Spirit in their church gatherings. It had gotten to the point that they were trying to enforce this kind of uniformity when it came to the gift of tongues. Kind of like, hey, if you don't speak in tongues, you don't have the Holy Spirit. Maybe you're not even saved. They were trying to force a uniformity when it came to the gift of tongues and it being the mark of the Spirit's presence. 
But Paul here has to correct their thinking on this issue. And he does so by telling them, subpoint A, don't be ignorant of spiritual things. He says, don't be ignorant of spiritual things. Look at verse 1 again with me in chapter 12. It says, now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be ignorant. You know that you were Gentiles carried away to these dumb idols, however you were led. So Paul is here comparing and contrasting. He is setting their previous experiences with pagan idolatry up against their present experience as Christians who were filled with the Holy Spirit and they were speaking by the Spirit of God. And he's comparing and contrasting the two experiences there in verses 1 and 2. You see, Paul doesn't want the Corinthian church to be ignorant concerning true spiritual things, true spirituality. It's not the fact that an utterance in tongues is being made that makes you spiritual, Paul says. You see, think about the way you used to live, he says. When you were carried away in your pagan worship services and led into worship of dumb idols in the pagan worship services in the temples there in Corinth, the more carried away that a person was, the more ecstatic that they acted, the more they got down on their back and shook like a cockroach. You know, I mean, maybe I shouldn't say that, but the the more ecstatic that they were, the more gibberish that they uttered, then the more spiritual they were considered to be. That was in the pagan worship service. Paul is establishing here that it isn't just an inspired expression of sounds that makes a person spiritual. That's not a sign of the presence of the Holy Spirit per se in and of itself. What really counts is what the people at that worship service actually get out of it. What can they understand? And that's why Paul in chapter 14 is going to say, listen, if you exercise the gift of tongues, do it within these parameters. No more than three or one at a time with the gift of interpretation. And if the gift of interpretation is not present, then don't practice that in the public worship service. And and we'll get into that. We're going to look at all of those things. But what really counts is what can we understand when we come together in public worship service what can we understand that the spirit of the lord wants to edify us with that's that that, that, that's what paul is getting at here it's not how led away you get in the spirit you did that when you were worshiping the pagan temples he says so what is it then well he wants us to test the fruit sub point b he wants us to test the fruit of what is happening in that church first corinthians chapter 12 verse 3 says therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed, and no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. This is a very interesting verse. Another one of those verses that falls into the category of of vague and difficult to understand. But I'm going to tell you, Paul's point in verse 3 is that no one who is seeking Jesus... No one who is seeking Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior is going to be willing to injure and harm his church by abusing the spiritual gifts. Let me repeat that. Paul's point in verse 3 is that if you and I are here to exalt Jesus Christ, then our heart is not going to be to abuse and harm other people in the church by abusing the gifts of the Spirit. Anyone who's speaking by the Spirit of God is ultimately going to show the fruit of exalting Jesus Christ and building up the church. Many churches today are making the same mistake as the Corinthian believers were making. 
They place too much emphasis on the gift of tongues and the utterance of tongues in the church service. But the fruit of all that speaking in tongues is not necessarily a changed life. Guys, I saw this countless times on the mission field in Costa Rica, where churches focus on the externals, the gift of tongues, speaking in tongues, and all of the emotions that are surrounded with that, and yet their walk with the Lord is about this deep, guys. It's really superficial. It's really shallow. And you don't see the fruit of the Spirit in their week-to-week lives, in their day-to-day lives, in their home life. Listen, Paul is exhorting us here to practice diversity when it comes to the gifts and to remember that it's the fruit of the Holy Spirit in our lives that really shows who's in control. You can talk in tongues all you want, but you can still be being controlled by your flesh, is what Paul is saying. So test the fruit. If it's really the Spirit, then we should see the fruit of the Spirit in your life, not just at church, but in your day-to-day, how you treat your wife, how you're raising your kids, what your spiritual devotional life looks like on your own. How deep is your walk with Jesus? Who's really controlling you? Is it emotions? Is it your own flesh? Or is it the Spirit of God? Listen, instead of being impressed by how spiritual someone may seem because they speak in tongues, Paul is saying here, we need to be led to exalt Jesus Christ. That's the test of the the Spirit of God working in our lives. So instead of becoming focused in on the gifts of the Spirit themselves as evidence of the presence of the Holy Spirit, we're to be fixated on the exaltation of Jesus Christ. Again, that's the ultimate measure of the presence of the Holy Spirit in church. So what is the vital test of the Holy Spirit's presence in the church? Is it, is it speaking in tongues and utterances or strange behavior? No, it is the exaltation of Jesus Christ. But on the other hand, Paul says, we're not to be ignorant of these spiritual things, the gifts of the Spirit. See, too many people get into one or the other extreme. On the one extreme, you've got people that are just extremely scared of anything having to do with the Holy Spirit. And so they don't want to talk about the gifts. They don't want to even be open to the idea of practicing them and walking in them. But that's the wrong extreme to be on. Paul says, don't be ignorant of spiritual things. And yet on the other end of the spectrum, he'll tell us in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, our God's a God of order. He does things in order with purpose. And so we're to be practicing things in order. And he lays out some some good guidelines for us in the public worship service. But ultimately here, the first three verses of chapter 12 is, is Paul is laying out this, this idea that we're to test the fruit. Are you living in such a way that the fruit of the Spirit is evident? That's a question I have for all of us this morning. Is the fruit of the Holy Spirit evident in your life? In other words, are you loving and exalting Jesus Christ in your life? And in turn, are you loving those who Christ loves, namely your neighbors? Paul has laid the foundation in these first three verses, and now he's going to go on to exhort the church to practice a day, a day, a day. <laughs> I can't talk this morning, sorry. I'm, I'm, I, you know me, I get excited about this stuff, and I tongue-tie myself. But he's going to talk about diversity of gifts, and that's our second point this morning in your outline. Paul brings up the vital need of a healthy church is a diversity of gifts in the context of unity not uniformity. Let me read that one more time because it's kind of a mouthful. (laughs) The vital need of a healthy church is a diversity of gifts in the context of unity, 
not uniformity. I am so glad that God does not want a bunch of uniform Christians walking around that dress the same, talk the same, and all have the same gifts. Man, that would be a real bummer. (laughs) It'd be a real bummer if every morning I looked out and there was a whole bunch of Phil McKay sitting out here, you know. (laughs) I'd be depressed. That would be a bummer. I'd be like, oh man, Lord, I got to find another church, you know. But it's not. We got all kinds of different personalities, different skills, different talents, different colors of skin. It's beautiful, the diversity of the body of Christ. And that's just the way God wants it. But he wants us to function in the context of unity. Paul's going to show us that our own God is a God of diversity who operates within that context of unity. He starts by saying there, in verses 4 through 7, that there is diversity in the Godhead. Diversity in the Godhead. He says, there are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of activities, but it is the same God who works all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. There are varieties of gifts, Paul says, but it's the same Spirit. There's variances in ministries, but it's the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, he says, but listen, it's the same God who's working all these things in all of us. What a beautiful picture, our God, the Godhead. There's diversity within the Godhead. There's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, yet Those three persons are united as one God. Don't ask me to explain that to you, okay? It's over my head. I don't get it. But but I'm not meant to understand everything about an infinite God as a finite human being. I have limitations. But God is here expressing himself as a diverse God within the context of unity. Then notice there in verse 7, Paul explains that all of these gifts, ministries, and activities are for one purpose, the edification of the body of Christ. What a good thing. See, so many people are scared of the gifts of the Holy Spirit because they think, oh man, it's going to get weird. (laughs) It's going to cause division. It's going to get, you know, it's going to get wild in here. I mean, we got palm trees on here this morning. You know, I mean, what? And we got a beach scene. Are we going to, you know, go back to the jungle and kind of get crazy this morning? I don't know. And, and people get scared of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. But listen, we don't have to be scared of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. You know why? Because the Holy Spirit's heart in imparting these gifts is not that we would go wild and draw attention to ourselves, but rather that we would edify and build up His holy church. That the family of God would be ministered to. That you and I would be blessed uh, by these gifts that He imparts to different believers who share them at the appropriate time and in the appropriate way. Paul will now mention some of those of the diversity in God's gifts. That's subpoint B after uh, point number two there, the diversity in God's gifts. And he does that in verses 8 through 11. Read, read along with me. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, and to another the word of knowledge through the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, and to another gifts of healings by the same Spirit. To another, the workings of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, discerning of spirits. To another, different kinds of tongues. To another, the the interpretation of tongues. Let's pause here for a moment. All right. 
So here's the list. Here's the list of nine gifts that are given to us by God's grace. Did you know that the word there is charisma and, 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 and charismata in the Greek? And, and all that means is that it's all an outpouring of God's grace and his love for his children. He wants the very best for you and for me this morning. God loves you guys so much that he's willing to enhance your lives with these good and holy gifts imparted to you from the Spirit of God himself. But listen, he wants us, he gives us these gifts in order to build up the church and to make us effective in the world. I'm not going to go through these gifts one at a time today because less than a year ago, I did just that, okay? And you can check that out. There's a series called Pneumatology on our website. It is it's called Who is the Holy Spirit? And you can find that study on our website. So if you go to our website, Click on Sermons for Feed Your Soul. Go down to Archive. Click on Archive, and it'll bring up our archive. You can find this, the, the, the series called Who is the Holy Spirit? And the name of the study is called The Gifts of the Holy Spirit, Part 1. And I go through, and I, I, I teach about what each one of these gifts are. And, and, and I give just some general things about those gifts. I want you to know that there's no way you can exhaustively define the Holy Spirit, guys. <laughs> you can't define the Holy Spirit. You don't put him in a box. I just want to tell you that right now. In fact, there's three things I want to tell you about this list that I felt led. I, first of all, let me explain. I, I, as I was studying and preparing this message, Holy Spirit totally led me not to explain these gifts one by one. Uh, and, and that's because of something else that he impressed on my heart today to share with you. But there are three things that he put on my heart to share with you about this list of gifts. Number one, I want you to know it is not an exhaustive list, nor is it meant to be an exhaustive list. Okay, Our God is so creative. He's so amazing. You can't contain all of God's gifts in one little list. That would be ridiculous to even try, and Paul knows that. He's just bringing this up because he's reminding the Corinthian church, look, there's got to be diversity. It's not just the gift of tongues, guys. There's plenty of other gifts out there that we can be exercising. But secondly, you cannot perfectly define these gifts because that would be to limit the Spirit. And I already said that. You can't perfectly define these gifts. I, I, I've tried. And if you read commentaries, you'll see everybody's got a difference of opinion on what these gifts are. But listen, I believe that's because the Holy Spirit planned it that way. There's no way you can define the Holy Spirit. You can't put him in a box, guys. He doesn't fit inside your expectations. I'm sorry to break it to you. God does what he wants. And he will do what he wants in our church and with us if we allow him to. Number three, the third thing I want you to know about these gifts is that I see these gifts in operation within our church body very often. Very often. Listen, I'll tell you right now, you have a pastor that prays in tongues. And I'm sure that there are several of you that also pray in tongues. And I love that gift and I'm so thankful for it because God uses it to edify and to build me up when I don't know how to pray. And there are many times when I don't know what to pray and how to pray and the Holy Spirit aids me in my prayers. And I'm thankful for that. But that's not the only gift that we see in operation. Now, the Lord has never prompted me to use that gift in a public worship service because I don't think it's going to be edifying for everybody for me to spout off unless he leads me to do that. Because if he leads me to do that, I know he's going to give the interpretation of that gift of tongues so that you can be edified as well. But listen, I want to say this. I see the gifts in this list in operation in our church on a weekly basis. 
I see the Holy Spirit at work in this church, and I am blessed by that. I am so proud to be a pastor of a church that believes in the Holy Spirit and knows who He is and is sensitive to Him. And I only wish that more of us would be sensitive to Him. Just this week, people have given me a hug and helped me through some hard things in my own life. I've had people share verses with me that they had no way of knowing, but it was God's word of prophecy speaking to my heart. I've seen love in action, the Holy Spirit, the fruit of love. That's what he gives, and there's so much evidence of that happening in our church. Why, just yesterday, gathered here for a memorial service for Christy Trimble's father. He was a very neat man, a very neat Christian man. And I saw so many people from our church showing up and serving food and giving hugs and arranging flowers and singing songs and doing things to let Christy know that we love her. She's a part of our family, and when she hurts, we hurt. And when we, we can come together around her like that, that's the fruit of love. That's the evidence of the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ being exalted in our midst. Now, I want to call your attention to verse 11, the last one that we'll cover this morning. Paul says there in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 11, but one and the same Spirit works all these things distributing to each one individually as he wills. Such a key verse. Did you notice that we can't work these things up? (laughs) We can't make this happen on our own. We're silly to think that we can. It's silly to think that you can control the Holy Spirit. You know, the only way that you can control the Spirit is by not believing in him. Because God is a gentleman. He doesn't force himself on any one of us. But if you'll open your heart to the Spirit of God, He is the one who's going to impart and distribute His gifts. You can't accomplish the gifts of the Spirit in your flesh. All we're to do is to keep our eyes on Christ. Our aim is to know Him, to love Him, to make Him known. And as we focus on that, hey, the Holy Spirit will take care of the rest because He loves this church. He loves you. And He loves the individuals that attend here. And He knows right where we're at. And so he sends those people with the right gift at the right time to touch the people in our body and to bring that the right gift. The greatest gift is the need of the moment. And the Holy Spirit has a way of providing that for us. And I love it. Now the vital test of the Spirit's presence, church, is not some unknown utterance of tongues that no one takes the time to interpret for others. Yeah, that is a gift of the Spirit, but it's not the only one, Paul is saying. It's not the gift of tongues that proves the Spirit is in me. It's whether or not my life is exalting Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior. So let's not be ignorant of spiritual gifts. We need them, Paul says. But there's a diversity of gifts, ministries, and activities. They're all meant to work together to build up the church, to encourage one another The vital need of a healthy church is a diversity of gifts within that context of uh, unity, not uniformity. We're not all supposed to try to do the same thing. Praise God for that. Not everyone speaking in tongues, and that's the only gift. Not tongues without interpretation, because that doesn't edify everyone, except for the person who's speaking. Unless there's interpretation, as I said. And we'll get into that. We're going to get into a lot more of that as we go on. 
But here's how I believe the Holy Spirit's leading me to end this message today. You see, we need the baptism of the Holy Spirit in our own lives. I personally desire all that God has for me. And because of that, I want to tell you today, we all need a continual infilling of the Holy Spirit. Read Ephesians 5.18 if you don't believe me. It's a command to believers to be filled with the Spirit of God. Be being filled continually is what the, the Greek imperative commands us there in Ephesians 5. Verse 18. So listen, church. Either I'm going to get power from God... Or I'm going to try to generate power in my own flesh. And I'll tell you right now, my flesh can only get me so far. My own power is insufficient to do anything that will last for eternity. I want to talk to you about Peter this morning. Peter was a man who, like many of us, had struggles with the flesh nature. His natural man. One minute, Peter was walking in the Spirit. He said, Jesus, you're the Christ. The Messiah, the Son of the living God. That's good, Peter. (laughs) Jesus said to him, flesh and blood did not reveal that to you, but rather my Father who's in heaven has revealed that to you. That's a prophetic word, Peter. You're walking in the Spirit now. But what happened in the very next moment, if you've ever read the story in Matthew chapter 16, we see Peter walking in the flesh again. When he rebuked Jesus, Jesus was talking about his upcoming death and crucifixion on the cross. And, and, and so Peter looks at him, he's like, Jesus, don't talk that way. That's not going to happen, Lord. And besides, it's bad for morale. You're getting the morale down, Lord. We don't want to talk like that. Let's keep it positive. What did Jesus do? He looked at him and he said, get behind me, Satan. Ouch. Ouch, you don't get more in the flesh than getting called Satan by Jesus. I just want you to know that, okay? That's pretty bad. Get behind me, Satan. You're an offense to me, Jesus said, for you are what? Not mindful of the things of God, but rather you're thinking about the things of men, Peter. You're thinking about the things of men. And so from one minute to walking in the Spirit, God, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah. Flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you, Jesus, or Peter, but my Father who's in heaven. Then the next minute, Jesus, don't talk about dying on a cross. That's, that's negative morale. It's getting us down, Lord, and it's not going to happen. You're God. Jesus says, get behind me. So this point in Peter's life marked a downward trend towards the flesh. Remember on the night of the Last Supper with Jesus? Peter again waxed eloquent. Remember, he said, Jesus, don't wash my feet. You're not going to wash my feet, Jesus. You're too good for that. There's Jesus, or there's Peter, thinking in the flesh. What did Jesus say to him? He said, Peter, if I don't wash your feet, then you don't have any part with me. And you remember what Peter said then? He's like, well, all right, Lord, well, (laughs) then just give me a bath, you know. Just give me a bath, Lord, just dunk me, you know. He's always got to be the biggest guy. He's always got to be the the one who's offering the most. He's always got to stick his foot in his mouth. That's Peter in the flesh. He reminds me a lot of me. Jesus told him, listen, if I don't wash your feet, you don't have any part. And and, and then he said, okay, give me a full body bath, Lord. But the Lord said to him, you don't understand, Peter. Those who are mine are already cleansed. You're already justified by the word of truth that I've given you. But you're going to need a washing of your feet. 
in the water of my word on a regular basis. That's the point he was trying to tell him. You're going to need that in order to abide in me, Peter. Then once again, a little later on, the same night, Peter in his flesh, he says, Lord, even if everyone else denies you, don't worry about me. I got your back, Lord. And he even says, I'll even die for you if that's what it takes. Such a boastful braggart. So like me when I'm in the flesh. I I try to put out this image of being a spiritual person. Oh man, me and Peter, we have a lot in common. I don't know if you're like me, but maybe you see some similarities there too between you in the flesh and Peter in the flesh. I try to accomplish things for God in my flesh. I get prideful. I think of myself more highly than I ought to. What God started in my life in the spirit, I try to finish in the strength of my own flesh. But listen, we know how that ends. It doesn't end well. Peter, it didn't end well for Peter either that night. He ended up going on and denying the Lord Jesus three times in his flesh, in the courtyard of the high priest. Listen, guys, this is where the flesh will lead you every time. It's going to lead you to a place where you become more concerned with the approval of men than you care about your relationship with God. And the things of men take precedence over the things of God in life. That's where the flesh leads. But Jesus doesn't leave Peter alone. He finds him after the resurrection, doesn't he? And he makes sure to restore Peter. And he gives him the great commission. And then he tells them to wait in Jerusalem for the promise that from on high, the Holy Spirit. Listen, guys, the Holy Spirit comes full circle. That's what we're talking about this morning. The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was the key ingredient that was going to allow Peter to finish his race well. Now, I don't know about you this morning, but I'm concerned about finishing my race well for the Lord. I want to finish my life well for Jesus Christ. I don't want to be a pastor that becomes a statistic. I want to finish well, but I can't do that in my flesh. I see it over and over again in the scriptures, in the life of Peter. Now, some of you are here this morning and you're going to get theological on me. You're going to say, well, Phil, don't you know, once you believe in Jesus Christ as Lord, once you receive the gospel, you receive the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And that's it, right? You get the Holy Spirit once He fills your life, you're good. Well, yes. Yes, that's true. But let me point this out to you as well. Let me get to think, let you to think on this for a moment with me. Jesus, in John chapter 22, verse 2, he breathed on the disciples. Or, I'm sorry, John chapter 20, verse 22. He breathed on the disciples and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. And in that moment, they received the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Jesus knew exactly what he did there in, in, in John chapter 20. But then what did he say? He said, Wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father, the Holy Spirit that is still to come. Why would he do that if there isn't another experience of the Holy Spirit when he comes upon you and I? There is one Greek word that describes the indwelling presence of the Spirit. It's E-N, in, our English word for in. The Holy Spirit indwells us when we believe the gospel. Yes, it's true. 
but the Holy Spirit comes upon us to empower us for service. That Greek word is epi, found in Acts chapter 1 and verse 5. It means to immerse completely, to overwhelm, to baptize, is the English translation. So what is that? Why would Jesus say, hey, receive the Holy Spirit and breathe on him, and the indwelling Spirit fills the disciples, and then he says, now go to Jerusalem and wait for the promise from on high, the promise of the Father. Why would he do that? He knew exactly what he was doing. He was doing that because God knows that we need the baptism of the Holy Spirit in our lives if we're going to succeed as Christians, if we're going to live this life well, if we're going to run to win. You see, God has called you and I to impact people's lives in the eternal sense. He wants to use you and I to lead people into His eternal presence. He's called me and He's called you to go after the hearts of men and women of this city. And the only way to get their hearts is by the Holy Spirit, church. I can't do that work on my own. I don't know if you've ever tried. It doesn't work too well. We can't do this on our own. Calvary Chapel Paris needs spirit-filled pastors and elders. We need spirit-filled leaders and spirit-filled volunteers. We need spirit-filled believers to be finding the hurting and praying for them. We need spirit-filled believers that are vessels in God's hands, willing to be filled and used. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Are you hungry for the things of God this morning? Are you hungry, church, for the things that God wants to do in your life and through your life? Are you looking to be used? Are you willing to seek the lost? As we close today, I want to ask you, those of you that want to, to get prayer for the following three areas. Number one, I want you to consider being baptized in the Holy Spirit. Have you ever been baptized in the Spirit of God? Now, the moment you believe the gospel, yes, you are given the gift of the Holy Spirit. We know that from Scripture. It's clear. But if you study the book of Acts, we see that the Holy Spirit then fills or baptizes, immerses, overwhelms the disciples And he does this to empower them for service, to be witnesses for God in the Jerusalem, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And then if you study the book of Acts, there's this experience that happens over and over and over again in Paul's and Peter's and John's lives and the other apostles where he fills them again. Pleuro is the Greek word, pleuro. And it means to to be filled completely again. This happens time and again in the book of Acts. And so, Christian, have you been baptized in the Holy Spirit? Listen, the believers in Corinth, they had been. That wasn't their problem. It wasn't a question of whether or not that was a real experience. It was real. They were just abusing it in some ways. Secondly, do you believe in the gifts this morning, but you don't walk in them? You would say with me, you would assent, you would say, yeah, I believe that the gifts are real. I believe that they're for today. God is the same yet, you know, yesterday, today, and forever. Why would he change? Why would he give to the church and then take away? And, 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 and here we see Paul writing about them as if they were, were going to exist forever. So why would they change? You assent to that. You believe that they are for today, but you don't walk in them. You're not practicing them. You don't feel the need in your life for them. 
And thirdly, I would ask, are you seeking the greater gifts? Are you seeking or desiring those greater gifts that God has for you in your life? Or are you just one of those Christians that's like, nah, I'm good. I don't want anything else from God. I got my salvation squared away. And I'm going to ride the bench until I get to heaven. Listen, that's not why God saved you. That's not God's plan for any of us. We learned about that this last Wednesday night as we studied the book of Judges. God doesn't want us on the sidelines. He wants us in the game. So if you would like to pray with someone today regarding any of those three areas, the baptism of the Spirit, walking in the gifts of the Spirit, or seeking for God's greater gifts in your life, then I want to take the time this morning and worship as we close to to do that, to give you the opportunity. And and we're going to have members of our leadership team, our elders and and leaders in the church, myself included. And we're just going to wait on the Lord. We're going to worship Jesus. We're going to worship Jesus, and we're going to exalt Christ. And if the Holy Spirit is leading you to reach out and to get prayer, to either be baptized or to walk in or to seek the greater gifts, I'm going to lead you in that as we do that, okay?